I just want to start oh, by wearing my microphone. Okay. Uh, I just want to start by by reading the psalm again. I know it didn't get up on the on the screen when AJ was reading it. It's not too long, so let's uh, let's get it up there for for us all to be able to see and hear one more time. <clears throat> the heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In the heavens he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom from his wedding canopy, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. It is rising from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the ends to the end of them, and nothing is hid from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure. Enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. But who can detect their errors? Clear me from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from the insolent. Do not let them have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. A couple years ago, I was uh, hiking and uh, up on the north west slopes of Mount Hood, and uh, we, we were hiking. It's a, it's a, um, a looped hike, so you know it's not like an out and back, but there's this loop. It's called the Ramona Falls Loop, and I think it's about three miles, four miles, something like that. It's not a, a ridiculously long hike for something up in the Mount Hood uh, wilderness there, <clears throat> but when you get there, you kind of, it's a just beautiful, beautiful hike. I mean, it's the, the temperate rainforest feel the whole way, the ferns and the moss and the high canopy trees in there. And we happened to be going when there were rhododendrons blooming the whole way. It was just a fantastic hike. Um, and so we get to Ramona Falls and it was Abby and I and, and uh, Caleb and Heidi Thurston. Uh, we were doing it before anybody had kids because we haven't done anything like that since. Um, <laughs> hopefully. As our kids get a little older, hopefully we'll get back out there. But um, we were we were going, uh, and we get there, and the the falls are are really really amazing. It, it's a it's one of those places where you the term cascades just kind of hits you, right? Like, oh, that's why they call these the cascades, right? The the water doesn't just fall down Ramona Falls; it cascades over these smooth uh, pieces of of Rock. I don't actually know what what kind of rock, but it's it's almost like these steps. It just it's just amazing, and it 
it's a spot that gets very, very little sunlight during the year because of the way it's situated on the slope and because of the trees. And so it's really cool. You got the, the water is all ice melt, right? So the, the water coming down is just frigid and it mists out and around. So if you stand on this bridge, um, you, uh, I'm sorry, I got to fix my microphone. It's driving me crazy. I think that's better. Um, so there's this mist that comes down. So if you stand on this bridge, you get kind of kind of wet and you start to feel cold. You know, we, we were hiking in the middle of the summer and everywhere else in Oregon, it was hot. But right here, it, was, it felt like it was like suddenly 60 degrees. And uh, so anyway, it's just a wonderful, wonderful little spot. And um, we got there and, and Abby had her camera and she started taking pictures. And Heidi and Caleb, I think, were taking pictures too. And we, we were probably there for like an hour. We just stopped at Ramona Falls. And, uh, and I, I saw this place and I just sat down on a rock and I didn't move for the whole time we were there. Um, I just felt, I felt like Ramona Falls was shouting out to me, was telling me of the glory of God. And I just sat, it just hit me. I mean, if anybody has ever hiked with me, I don't do that. Right. Uh, I, I jump on things. I climb things. I look like I'm eight years old again, typically, when I'm out in the wilderness. Uh, it, it alivens the little boy in me. And, uh, but I didn't, this particular day, I didn't explore at all. I just sat on this rock and looked at the Ramona Falls and, uh, and praised God. In fact, it, it moved me to, to make confessions, actually. You know, when, when Isaiah um, 6, Isaiah, I don't know. This is why people should write notes down, right? Um, no, it wouldn't have made it in my notes anyway because it just popped in my head. I, Isaiah 6 or 9, I think it's 6, uh, where, you know, he says, I, I entered the temple and I saw the Lord seated on the throne. And, and when he's there in the, in, the, uh, in the presence of God, he confesses, he says, woe is me. Right? He makes this confession about his own identity, about who he is, um, and he confesses who God is. And I had just had this experience at Ramona Falls where I was telling God how great he was, and I was thinking about how badly I needed him. Right? So there's something about entering into uh, nature for some people, myself included, that it does feel feel like nature is telling i love that it's not it's not that the stars said or sometimes say or that the sun used to say or will say it's telling the glory of god and so uh i come to psalm 19 out of personal experience with that um there are a lot of times even when i am jumping around in different places running, climbing, moving through nature quickly, where it still does that in my heart. It still stills me um, and makes me kind of have a, a moment with God. So <clears throat> all of the Psalms, almost all of them, you'd be, you'd be hard-pressed to find a Psalm that does not include these two things, two components. Um, the two components, are they are both confessions. And the two confessions are this. One is about the identity of God, right? This is who you are, God. 
This is what you're about. These are the things that make you, you. The second confession is, and this is who I am. This is my identity. And so I think the Psalms are almost always about identity. The identity of God and the identity of the writer of the psalm, or sometimes it's the identity of the people of Israel. Sometimes the psalms are about the whole people, the whole nation together. <clears throat> but there's this, this confession of identity, to, and it goes two ways. I'm confessing this is who God is, and this is who I am. Now, I hadn't thought about that when I went to Ramona Falls. Like that, I wasn't, I wasn't writing a sermon about the psalms, and yet that was what happened to me there. There's something about when you, when you have a moment with God, when you have a connecting point, there is this natural tendency to do both of these things. This is, it's almost like you're wired. We are wired to do this, to acknowledge who God is, and then on the other hand, to acknowledge who we are. Now, the whole point of me doing these Psalms uh, sermons is I really want, like I did last week, the same goal today is I want to talk about life with God and I want to give us real practical things that we can just do to, uh, to encourage, to cultivate a daily um, relationship with Christ. Where Christ is in your mind and in your heart and in your life through each step of your day, each step of your journey, each step of of your life. And I think that uh, thinking about this confession and identity um, in the Psalms, I think, is really a useful, practical idea for how to encourage and deepen our relationship with Jesus. Um, so I want to look at uh, Psalm 19 and how it is a confession of the identity of God first. Psalm 19 confesses God's identity as creator and as teacher. And at first it seems really strange why these two things are together. There is no explanatory statement that says, uh, says how uh, creation and then the law of God goes together. So you get Psalm 19, and uh, he's talking about the, the sun and he's talking about how wonderful it is and how amazing the sun is and how it's, you know, it's telling of the, of the uh, glory of God. And so in verse 6 it says, It is rising, its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and nothing is hid from its heat. And then the very next line is this, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. What does that have to do anything? What? How does that make sense? Um, Hold on to that thought. It begins with this creation, though. All of creation is telling of the glory of God. And then it talks about how, uh, how steady creation is, right? Day by day, night by night. And the sun runs its course no matter what. Like a strong man with joy, it runs its course to the end. And then it talks about how its course is from one end of the heavens all the way to the other end. Of the heavens, you know, and of course he's writing from his perspective, right? And uh, <clears throat> and when you think about it, when you think about the stars, and you think about creation, and you think about, especially he's thinking about the heavens, right? The the firmament, the tent in which the sun is in, as he puts it. 
all that stuff seems so constant and steady, amazing, right? Has anybody ever woken up on a day when the sun didn't rise? Anybody gone to bed? <laughs> right, if you worked at night, I guess, it's not fun. Uh, I suppose also if you lived in uh, really northern stretches of the uh, planet or southern stretches, but you don't, so don't say that, <laughs> okay? <laughs> don't poke holes in my thoughts. Um, so that even even if it is dark, even if you are living up there in the uh, the hinterland and and you don't get any sunlight or or you've seen the I I love there's like time lapses of the sun just like barely skirting the edge of the horizon. It's super cool. Although I can imagine how it would be like, come on, go higher. <laughs> even even in that, like if the sun wasn't there, you would freeze to death. Even like if you were inside with like propane heat or something, wouldn't matter. Because if the sun's not there, if it's dark, we're the opposite of – I was about to say we're toast, but it's actually the opposite of that. All right? So that the steadiness, the constantness of the sun is essential to human life. Not just human life, but the life of everything on this planet. It's really interesting. Um, this psalm and the way that it talks about the sun is uh, – it follows a similar rhythm of a Babylonian praise song to the sun itself. It follows a similar rhythm to a Babylonian praise poem song to the sun itself. Now, the Hebrews lived in a world where uh, they were very unique in terms of their religion. So that the Akkadians... The uh, Canaanites, the um, the prophets of Baal of Baal, and the uh, Babylonians, the Egyptians—they all worship certain elements of nature as if they were God, right? And they all worship multiple gods, and so that to confess in their day to confess that God is Creator is extraordinarily countercultural. And it's saying that you, it's saying to the, to the outsiders, you worship the thing itself. I worship the creator of it. So that the steadiness of the sun is not something that I worship. The steadiness of the sun is something that tells me of God's care for his creation and how he has designed the world to be a place that we can live in. I always joke this time of year, though, like, I totally get why ancient peoples worshipped the sun. You know, like if I didn't know anything about Jesus, and and I I like lived a really long time ago, and it like it's dark and dreary and cold all winter, and then suddenly the sun comes out. I get why people are like, yeah, you're 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 it, <laughs> you know. Uh, but this is the world in which they live, and it appears that the writer of this psalm has has phrased and structured this poem. The first half of this poem around around a Babylonian hymn in praise of the sun itself. And why did the Babylonians worship the sun? Because its constantness allowed for life. Right? You rely upon the sun coming up and warming your crops so that they will grow and produce. Well, the steadiness of the sun 
is still a great thing in the mind of the Hebrews. But the steadiness of the sun points to the steadiness of its creator, which is the next part of the confession. The law of the Lord is perfect. And I would argue that all the stuff he says about the law of the Lord is about its steadiness and its constants. Does that make sense? Let me read it to you and kind of think about it that way. Um, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes, and it goes on and on. So that we don't have to look up the sun and beg it to come up in the morning. Because right? that's what they did. That's what people like the Babylonians and the Egyptians did. They, they offered things to the sun, hoping it would come out and bless them. The Hebrews said, no, we know the one who created it. And you know what's even better? He's given us a law, a teaching, the Torah. Another way to translate Torah is not law, but instruction, teaching. He's taught us how to live, and that revives us. That is as steady as the sun. That is as steady as the other things that God created. So that in the mind of this writer, the creation, God as creator, is deeply linked to God as teacher. Because the same character that God brought to creating things is what God has brought to teaching Israel how to live. Just as he created a sun that revives the earth, he's created a law that revives the soul. This, this, uh, and so this confession unfolds along these two lines that are interconnected. God is creator, and God is teacher. Then the, uh, the, the psalm moves on to his confession of who he is. He is a beneficiary of all that God has done. Another way I, I could have put this is that he's a dependent, right? He depends upon the steadiness of the sun that God has created. He depends upon the Lord's law. And he, I mean, I love that line about like, help me not do, like my translation for myself, if I was writing, it was like, help me not do stupid things, <laughs> right? Uh, he says it, uh, where is it at? Uh uh, yeah, what verse is it? 13. Yeah, keep back your... Uh, 13? Back your zimmer also from the... Oh, 12. But clear me from hidden faults. There it is. Clear me from hidden faults. My translation to that is don't let me do stupid things. All right? Don't let me do things I don't realize I'm doing that are bad. And so he's a, a beneficiary. He has been taught by this. <clears throat> the next one is uh, in verse 13. He says, keep back your servant also from the insolent. Servant is a term that we maybe just cross over and like don't think too much about. But servant, a servant is somebody who lives as a dependent within the household of the master. Right? In their world. Like for us, a servant, you live in your own house. And you go and you get paid and you come home and you live your life and you're there when you're there, but you're not there when you're not there. Not in their world. 
to say I am a servant of God is I am entirely, utterly, and totally dependent upon the master. Now, we see that as a bad thing socially, and it is, because there is no master that can, can do what God does. But spiritually, it gives life. And so he sees himself as a beneficiary and also, I think, as a student. Also as a student. So that all of this stuff is about following and learning the teachings of the Lord, or as it puts it, the law of the Lord, the Torah. You know, when I think about prayer, many of you have heard me say this. My big thing about prayer is there's essentially like three different types of prayer, right? There's the prayer of thanksgiving. Four. Let's, let's do four. Uh, there's the prayer of thanksgiving, right? God, thank you so much for this. Thank you so much for that. Um, and then there's the prayer of help. God, help me with this. Help so-and-so with that. Help me with this. Help so-and-so with that. Help, help, help. And then there's the prayer of, um, of forgiveness, of confession. God, I've done this. I need your help. Prayer of repentance. And those, those are maybe all things that you practice, and I, they're good, and you should definitely do that. But I think the centerpiece of a disciple's heart is the prayer of a student. Lord, teach me. Teach me. I mean, how long was the last time you actually approached God and said, I want to be taught? When was that the confession of identity that we have made? It's easy to say, I've made a mistake, God forgive me. That's actually, that's not easy to say. <laughs> Sometimes that's really hard, actually. But it's a different thing to say, God, I made a mistake. Forgive me, and now teach me to do differently. So that the teaching of the Lord revives the soul. Right? Certainly, forgiveness of God is awesome and amazing. But what revives our soul, our ability to live in this world and the next is his teaching hand. So the psalm writer has this, this confession of who he is. He is the beneficiary of the God who creates, the God who creates the universe and the God who creates the law, the teaching, the Torah. And he confesses his desire to be a servant, to be a student of that Torah, of that teaching. And then the psalm ends with something that confesses both of the identities. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You see that this is a confession of both the identity of God and the identity of the writer. You are my rock. But you're not just any rock, you're my rock. You are redeemer, but not just anybody's redeemer, you're my redeemer. When I read that this week and I thought about it, I want my, uh, oops, I'm getting ahead of myself. I forgot about this part. My rock, remember I was talking about constants, right? The constants of the sun, the, the telling of the glory of God. God is so steady that he has created the universe and its, uh, its ability to sustain life and to do it day in and day out for day and night to happen, day and night to happen. God has created the most steady things in our world. 
I also thought about the fact that, like, we also know, like, the writer of the psalm didn't know this, I'm sure. But we know stars die. You think about that? Stars die. You know, we've, we've, I don't know if we've, I think we've witnessed it, like, live. People have actually seen it. But stars have an end. They are as constant as anything that our minds can, like, compute. And yet they, they die, which is why they're not to be worshipped. Right? That's why the song, the psalm, is written about the creator of the sun and not the sun itself. Given long enough, our sun will die. Sure hope I'm not there to see that. Although I guess it'd be kind of cool. I'm going to die anyway. Um, but uh, anyway, you wouldn't know for six minutes. I've always thought that's crazy. It takes six. Anyway, um, the, uh, and so God is my rock. The same God as that is the rock of creation is my rock. And then God is my redeemer. That this teaching, this fathering that God does in delivering Torah, in giving us laws and giving us commandments, it doesn't just, it doesn't just forgive me I think redemption means something a little bigger than that because redemption implies life afterward, right? And redemption, I think, implies you, you become something now. I am redeemed into being a student of God. So I read this, uh, this passage this week, and my, my thought that really struck me and hit me and kept me still was, can I say this? Is it true of me? Can I say it with the fullness of my heart? Oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Is it true of me? Can I say, oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer? Or do I have other rocks? <laughs> have I put the kind of trust in a creation that should only go to the creator? Phone is a wonderful example of that. <laughs> it is, actually. Uh, have I put my trust in something that is a creation that that's really only the creator is worth of or worthy of? Do I believe in some kind of redemption from something else? Do I believe that God can be my rock or only that God can be the distant creator of things, but not someone who is interested in my life? Do I believe in the God who offers redemption in Jesus? Can I say these things with fullness, with wholeness? And I, I was thinking about, um, I was thinking about my dad with this. Cause I, uh, I grew up and my dad, my dad taught me over and over and over again. Um, well, he taught me not to ask him or talk to him about problems I was having. Right? When I was in middle school, every time I complained, complained about somebody, my dad had the same answer every time. It was, and it was, well, Matt, you ought to pray for that person. And I was like, no, I want to hit him in the face. I don't want to pray for them. It's like, how about, how about you give me a little sympathy, dad? How about you tell me about how awful you think they are too? 
right? I had this teacher in particular in sixth grade. Uh, this teacher actually told my mother at a parent-teacher conference that I was dumber than a box of rocks. Um, I don't know how she survived that, but she did. And uh, and I remember I remember complaining about this teacher. She like we just it was awful. It was just one of the worst years, sixth grade for me. And uh, and I would complain to my dad about this teacher. And uh, and every time, well, Matt, you just ought to pray for her. Crazy. At that time, I would have said the the teaching of my dad depresses the soul, right? So then I get uh, a little older, and uh, I'm I'm in high school, and there's this other guy named Matt on our our track team, and he was a sprinter, and uh, and he was just one of the meanest, scariest people I'd ever known in my life. And I I was when I was a freshman in high school, I was what 14. And uh, I think 15, I think, by the spring. And um, I was probably five feet, you know, with certain shoes and uh, like maybe 100 pounds. Uh, and I, uh, I was terrified of this guy because he, he loved to pick on people. And he, lo- like, he was someone who was physically violent. I mean, he wasn't going wasn't gonna, to like put you in the hospital, not that kind of violent. But, you know, the the sport team violence of like grabbing somebody and, uh, you know, doing certain things with them. And, uh, uh, I was terrified of him. And I remember one day he made fun of me at practice. I don't even remember what I was doing. And I, I was just like, didn't know how to react to that. You know, it was just, just stood still, um, just like emotionally still, you know, I just, and I went home that night and I didn't tell my parents about it because by the time you get to high school, unless you're a much better person than I was, you don't tell your parents that stuff anymore because <laughs> you know what they're going to say, right? You've lived in their house long enough that you're like, you don't have to ask anymore. And I, I remember thinking, maybe I should try praying for him, right? Maybe I should just give it a shot. Maybe I should just taste my dad's instruction and see if it's good. And so I did. I prayed for him. Spent about a week every day. Prayed for him in the morning. Prayed for him in the night. And uh, by the end of that track season, uh, Matt was a great friend of mine. (laughs) Um, And there were other guys on our track team who were not as scary as he was who – were also like him though, like they wanted to do freshman initiation with me, and they uh, they wanted to make fun of me. And by the end of this track season, uh, Matt was sticking up for me and defending me. And uh, and I remember at the end of that track season praying with him about his relationship with his dad, which was pretty crappy. Suddenly, I tasted the instruction my dad had offered me and found that it was really good. This is from Psalm 34. I sought the Lord and he answered me. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Look to him and be radiant. Look, Notice how all these things are actions, right? Seek the Lord. Look to him. 
so your faces shall never be ashamed. This poor soul cried and was heard by the Lord and was saved from every trouble. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Happy are those who take refuge in him. What I want to encourage you today is that the creator of the universe, in all his steadiness, in all his reliability, in all of his wonder and amazement and glory, wants to teach you as if he were a dad, <laughs> a good, wonderful, teaching father. That's the point of this psalm, that the creator of the universe has, has sought out teaching you to give you instruction that will revive your soul. And so what I, what I want to ask of you, how can you taste and see? What can you do to turn your face to look to him? What can you do to seek him out? What can you do to say, teach me, God? How can you take your posture and turn it towards God and open yourself up to who Jesus is and wants you to be? We're going to um, end today with this, uh, this line from, from the psalm. It's, it's talking about the law, talking about the, uh, um, talking about the instruction of God, the Torah, talking about how wonderful that is. And he says, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Um, in the first and second century, so right around the time of Jesus' life, little boys uh, little little Hebrew boys, the very first thing that they memorized was Psalm 19. Now, these boys, if they lasted long enough, if they showed promise, they would, they would learn to memorize the entire Old Testament. But they would start with Psalm 19. And at the end, at the end, they would repeat again, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. And as they did that, the rabbi who was teaching them would put a drop of honey on their tongue to remind them of the sweetness of what they were about to learn. So I want you, um, as, as, we, as, as I pray, as the worship team comes and sings, as the worship service comes to a close, I invite you to come. Come over, if there's honey over here and a stick to taste it, Come over here if you just want to spend some time praying. If you want to spend some time turning your face to God's, opening yourself up to him, seeking him out. Come over here if, you, if, if you're not in a place where you need to do that. You just want to get the taste of honey as you exit at the end. But do come and do it as a symbol of what you want to do in your life. Do it as a symbol of the relationship that you want to carry forward. Do it as a symbol of the goodness of God that you want to revive your soul. Let's pray. Father, I know too well how good it is
to actually follow you. I want you to be my rock. I want you to be my redeemer. I ask you to take me and make me a man for whom that is 100% and utterly true. And God, I ask the same for us as a congregation, that you would be our rock, you would be our redeemer, and that we would find that such a relationship with you is sweet and good and reviving. You are marvelous, and all of creation does tell of your glory. You are so faithful. We pray that your spirit would stir in each and every one of us a way in which we can turn ourselves to you, to be taught by you, to be fathered by you, to be held by you, to invite you to walk with us and lead and to find that that is as sweet as the taste of honey. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.